Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam warahmatullahi Okay, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem. Amma ba'd. We express our we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay, so continuing along, finishing up uh, Surah or the Ayah in Surah Ali Imran, Ayah number seven. Let's switch the screens over. One second here. This. Alrighty, somebody nod, let me know you can see the screen, the, the Quran screen. Okay, very good. Okay, so we've gone through the first part. He's the one who sent down this scripture to you, onto you. This got up to you, and some of the ayahs are Aham, are Muhkamats, and they are the mother of the book, and then Ukhara Mutashabihat. And so there are others that are that are allegorical. And as for those people who have this perversity in their heart, that they seek to cause trouble, they seek to cause fitna by giving by this desire to give meanings of their own. And so then we talk from there about this, uh, the next passage, So nobody knows the meaning except for Allah. And those, those who are certain, who are endowed with knowledge. Um, but we did not finish the, the common reading. And so we'll be finishing off this ayah. And a point I'd like you to start thinking about, especially as we finish the dua that's going to be in the next ayahs, is when we put all of these ayahs together, what are some common messages? What are some consistent themes? Or what lessons can we then compile? Especially, for example, if we take ayah 6 and ayah 7. I mean, think about this in the back of your mind for now. So let's get to the, the whiteboard. And switch to this. Once again, let me know. You can see the whiteboard. Yes, good. Okay. Okay. So, in terms of meaning of ayahs. Look at the issues that we have here. One is that we have uh, clear and hazy ayahs. Okay, so now what I'm not listing here is the obvious that all of this is coming from Allah Ta'ala. And he's the one who has sent out all of this. Okay. And then we have the issue of motivation or spiritual condition 
of the interpreter. And so think about the point we're making here, interpretation. Your spiritual condition will affect your interpretation or potentially will affect your interpretation of text. And so think back to the drawing that I made yesterday uh, about the parts you have. Again, you have the heart. Hey, not bad. Better, mashallah, huh? I'm gonna tap my cell phone back here, mashallah. Okay. So, and then we have this drawing. We have your, so we have your irada, your niya, your, your, your amal, your actions. Okay. <clears throat> and so the point we were making uh, yesterday is that as I have more layers upon my heart, layers around my heart, more lenses through which I look at reality, it is going to obscure my understanding, my perception of reality. And the easiest way to think about it is suppose you grow up in a casino, you're going to internalize the morality of the casino. And there are subtle differences, even when we think of how does a society that is a, a presidential democracy operate versus how does a monarchy operate in terms of how we look at things like social class, right? In theory, in a democracy, in theory, everybody's of the same level, right? Everyone has one vote. Or when you add socioeconomics, then we have social stratification and such. But the point here, is that the more layers that I have around my heart, potentially it will affect the clarity of my understanding reality, which means it will potentially affect my understanding of, of morality. And so, uh, I'll try to get to your question, but it'll probably be a, a bit. So, so, the uh, the way that my understanding of morality will especially, or my consciousness of morality will especially be affected is that if without compulsion, sorry for making it so big, if without compulsion, I'm also making corrupt choices. So this the example I gave you yesterday is I'm lying for no reason, yeah. uh, except purely for worldly gain. And so as I make more of those choices, that is especially gonna have consequences on my morality. So here we're saying that my yearnings will affect my intentions, which will affect my actions. Then we're also saying my purity of heart, my level of purity of heart will have consequences on many things. It'll have consequences on my morality. It'll have consequences on my belief. 
it will have consequences on my other doctrines. So like, you know, secondary beliefs, things like that, it'll have consequences on my, it'll have consequences on, on all the different ways in terms of my mind and what I take as important. So the example we have in Surah Al-Baqarah is that the children of Israel reached a point in which the love of the calf was deep in their heart and running through their veins. And so when Moses tells them to do X, Y, Z, they literally are saying, we listen and we disobey. They've reached that point of corruption. And we see this, right? If you listen to the language of, of, some, of, of, of whether we're talking about criminals or we're talking about heads of, of international corporations that are being accused of corrupt practices, Right. Uh, for example, I remember this conversation, this interview, uh, and it's only a selection of the interview with the CEO of Nestle a couple of years ago, who was saying water is not a human right. Yeah. And and so so that uh, is easy for him to justify in 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 his outlook. You know. Or when a criminal is speaking, a criminal is speaking through a certain specific uh, outlook of morality. And I'm talking about an actual criminal criminal, not someone who's you know, oppressed in society and then is making all kinds of choices that, that, that are not good. And so what I mean here is someone who's basically of the view that all right, everybody in this world is out for themselves. And so I'm gonna do you know, whatever I want. So the level of purity of your heart Thus, we're saying in this context, if you understand and agree with all that, thus it will affect how you interpret anything. So it'll affect your interpretations of the actions of other people. So I do this exercise every semester in, in my undergraduate class, um, which is part of a lesson when we're talking about riba and such. And then I'll ask them, if I'm giving you, uh, let's say you need $100 and I give you $100 and you owe me nothing in return, how many of you would take it? And many say no. Some people say no because they feel it's going to be held against them. Some people say no because they feel like they're taking advantage of me. And I'm literally saying it's a gift. And then, and, and so that's, uh, I think, revealing over generations how the answer to that question changes. When my, in the first, perhaps, two-thirds of my teaching career, everybody said yes. Yeah, I would take it, of course, especially if I need it. But now it's very common for students to say, no, I'm not going to take it. Or I would give you something in return even if you're not asking for it. Now, I'm not saying that's a sign of corruption or not, but I am illustrating that, that this can also become generational. Okay, so what else do we have in our conversations uh, uh, on, on interpretation and the meanings of ayahs? So your, motiv your motivation and your spiritual condition. So in our language of what we've been drawing on the board, your intentions and the condition of your heart will affect the meanings that you derive from the ayahs. So. 
And then, the common understanding of who are the would be people who have some sort of scholarly understanding. So this raises a term, Mosav, uh, yes, accepting gifts as sunnah, correct. This raises a term uh, that those of you who've taken classes with me before, fundamentalism. When we speak of fundamentalism in our collective society, usually we are speaking of people who are, what's the word, um, who are essentially ultra strict, ultra strict and potentially violent. Right, that's what we're talking about when we hear terms like Islamic fundamentalism, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist fundamentalism, so forth and so on. And fundamentalism in the academic sense is often referring to people who are skipping the history of interpretation and giving their own meanings to text. So I'm reading this ayah, what does this mean? It means X, Y, Z. Can't you see it? It's obvious to me. And so they're skipping the entire history of tradition. and just implanting their own meanings. So when we're speaking of rasikhuna fil ilm, a common understanding of this is scholarly understanding. And what is that essentially saying? It's saying knowledge of the history of the interpretation But then also in this, we have a core point. So the people who are endowed with this knowledge, and I'm not saying it's limited to that understanding, but we are saying, uh, uh, but people who are endowed with this knowledge also have the most basic uh, 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 understanding of the ayahs. What is the basic understanding right there in the ayah? believe in it. We have something very similar around Ayah 26 in Surah Al-Baqarah, where Ayah 26 is speaking about, you know, uh, Allah using metaphors, like the metaphor of a gnat. And in the middle of the Ayah, it says, those who believe or those who are, who are given knowledge believe in it as as uh, truth from their Lord. So what are we saying here? The most basic relationship you should have with an ayah is to believe in it, even if you don't know what it means. Even if the meaning it's of itself is not all that clear to you. The most basic relationship is believe. Believe that it is all truth. And then it goes further, believe in it, all is coming from your Rabb. And of all the attributes that is being used, we're using Rabb here, which right we defined before as the one who takes you from immaturity to maturity according to your unique design, your nurturer, meaning what? That the whole of the Quran, every ayah, is nurturing.
So what are we saying? Level A of your most basic relationship with the ayah is to believe in it, and level B is to regard it as all coming from your rub and is thus nurturing. Okay, let's stop right here for a second and before we get into وَمَا يَذَكَّرُ إِلَىٰ أُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ Let's, uh, I'm sorry, a number of you had questions. So, Amosan uh, sorry, you had your hand raised. You had a question? Uh, I, I did uh, earlier, but I think I sort of, uh, you know, changed my, <laughs> changed my mind. What, what I was really thinking was, could Mutashabia also uh, maybe relate to it, something being non-beneficial? Mm. Um, so that, it, it, you know, it, the, the, that kind of knowledge would be non-beneficial for you. It's not going to have a, 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 an impact on your behavior one way or the other, and you're just going to keep, you know, going deeper and deeper into certain some uh, some topic, but it really is not going to add any value. Mm. Could that be one aspect of Mutashabia? I mean, it's possible. Uh, I don't recall coming across anything reading, uh, interpreting the idea of Mutashabia that way. There's definitely, of course, the idea of knowledge that is not beneficial, and there's definitely the idea of knowledge that's detrimental. So, for example, this is around Ayah 102 or 106 of Al-Baqarah, where we have uh, the, the people of, uh, you know, uh, uh, who are speaking to the angels, Harut and Marut, and they're being given knowledge, and the angels are telling them, okay, this is, this is not good for you. So that, as a concept, that is a thing. But uh, is that referring to this? Yeah, Allah knows best. You know, it could be referring to... to uh, beneficial and non-beneficial knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Or knowledge that is clearly beneficial versus knowledge that may not be. I mean, those types of things, what I often suggest is make it a thesis. And then as you continue through the text, see if you can find support or opposition to, to your thesis. And then see, see, uh, see what you determine by the time you're done with the text. If that makes sense. Uh, awesome. How does that fit within the textbook meaning of fundamentalism? It's designed with a Christian paradigm, so it may not actually fit. This is, uh, uh, so, so this is, uh, hey, Dr. Mahan, are you here? Uh, there your kids are. Okay, so, oh yeah, there you are. Hey, uh, 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 Mahan, how would uh, Scott Appleby define fundamentalism? He's sort of like the big guy. Uh, you know how he did define it? Because I feel like yeah. I got the definition from him. Yeah, he's got five volumes. I don't yeah. remember the exact definition, but um, the characteristics, I think he has five characteristics. Among them are, you know, this uh, lacking context. So acknowledge, ignoring the history, like you said, but also seeing the world in terms of black and white mm -hmm. rather than nuance. That was another one, but I don't remember the exact definition. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where I'm getting my, 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 my definition from. And so, as, as, as Dr. Mahan mentioned, he has these five fat, fat volumes of studies of fundamentalism across religious traditions, even including across uh, uh, Sikhi tradition and, and, and others giving examples and analyses and such. Giant, giant work of scholarship. Uh, so the point I'm making is that uh, may or may not be, uh, it may, it's probably starting with the Christian paradigm because that's how all this stuff does, but uh, uh, does not necessarily mean that it's inaccurate. 
Uh, Motab is saying, can you elaborate more on the difference between heart and the soul? I'm still confused by how you explained it uh, yesterday. So the short version of this is that if we have this drawing, in fact, here, let me give you a different chart. I hope you all aren't getting tired of my charts. So this is the human. So let's say a hypothetical human being like Mossab. And so we have uh, body, mind, heart. And then soul is just this other thing. And I found it. Yes. So they draw lines in the sand. Uh, yes. Demand un demand unconditional obedience from the rank and file. Yeah. Expend enormous energies maintaining boundaries between the pure and impure. Yeah. Build impenetrable dogmatic fortresses around quote unquote the truth, and see their version of it as absolute, infallible, or inerrant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Those are the... yeah. Thank you. So heart needs and best satisfaction. Can you type those into the chat? Is it too much to ask? Are you asking me or asking Mahan? Mahan, do you mind? Yeah. Thanks. No problem. I, I can do it. Thank you so much. Okay. So in terms of the parts of the human, uh, uh, including trying to make sense of where the soul fits into this, the bottom line with the soul is we don't really know too much. And, and so when we have the body, the innate need of the body is connection, physical connection. So think of the joy, the pleasure that we often forget because we take it for granted of a handshake or the pleasure of a hug or even the pleasure of biting food. It's needed for physical connection. And and we have a word for what the mind needs. It's curiosity. And so it's a need for knowledge. This is sort of like the food of the mind. And the food of the heart is intimacy. And intimacy here is essentially a special access. So this would be the friendship between two people. But this can also be your specific connection to nature. And so this is the innate need of each of these. So the best satisfaction of, of the heart is intimacy with Allah. The best satisfaction of the mind is knowledge of Allah. And the best satisfaction of the body is connection with Allah that cannot happen on this side. It will happen on the other side, inshallah, for all of us, inshallah. But uh, so, for example, in paradise, the, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure that a human being can experience will be to see Allah. And so the soul, as this last column is increasing, then the happiness, the visceral happiness of the soul 
is increasing. Now, beyond that, what is the soul? It could be your animating force, like the idea of John. Oh, knows best. This seems to be where we find some amount of a little bit of consistency. But the second most common thing we seem to find is this idea of your animating force. So we can So this would be the difference between the heart and the soul. Nevertheless, to be fair, many people do use soul and heart interchangeably. In the same way, many people use the self and the soul interchangeably. And I think part of it is just the fact that the soul is a big mystery. Ahmad, can I ask a question here? Please. What are your thoughts on um, when your soul is not matching to your reality? Is that the whole question? So reckon, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I can elaborate, but do you get what I'm asking? or? Well, uh, let me give you the first part of an answer and you can tell me whether or not it, it fits. One of the points that we can consider from the story of Adam and Eve leaving paradise and coming to earth is that there's going to be a part of you that is never going to find satisfaction in this dunya. Meaning you're, there's a part of you that will never fit in this world. Your physical part will fit in this world or can, or can find pleasure in this world. But there's also a part of you which may be your soul but there's a part of you that is not of this world, so it'll never find a home here. And then likewise, looking at the screen, uh, I don't know if you can see the screen or not, but uh, when we're looking at the part of the true satisfaction of the body, that is also something that cannot be found true satisfaction here. You can fill the second column here with worldly sources, and that's still not a bad thing, right? Friends, you know, your, your spouse, mind is any sort of knowledge. You know, the heart is intimacy through, through friendship, parent, child, daughter. But there will be a part of you that will never, ever fit in this world. Let me know if I'm somewhere on, on track with your question. Yeah, you are. And I understand that, but I, I guess where does it draw the line of where it's... Um, where it becomes overwhelming or it's not fitting or it's creating a lot of unhappiness or yeah. something is just not in equilibrium. Mm -hmm. But then how do you balance that with responsibilities and, you know, yeah. what you owe others? So, so a couple of ways to, uh, to think about this. One is, is that the, suppose you have a loved one who passes away and this, and this, the strange experience when you're trying to mourn is that the whole world keeps moving. And, and chances are, depending upon what your personal and professional obligations are, you still have to work. Yet your heart is in a completely different place. And, and so that in some ways is a common experience of life where you still have to go through through all the, the, the mechanical processes of life just because you have to, even though your heart is completely aching. And then on top of this, I think that in our era, especially the past year, but especially the past decade, uh, 
it's almost as though despondency is one of the defaults of our time, you know, where it literally feels like nothing's working. And I think a lot of that have seen that, uh, especially living in quarantine. Uh, but I think a lot of it, a lot of it, people have been exposed to not realizing that it's there. And so then that raises the question uh, of healing that, uh, that, that each and every one of us might have to go through specific pathways of healing. And the healing can be something related to what I've been talking about in terms of redefining Dean completely. That's a bigger process. You know, what does Dean mean to me? How do I, how do I understand my relationship with the law? Because what worked for me for the past decade or the past 30 years, the past 50 years hasn't wor isn't working anymore. You know, that's a process everyone has to go through. Uh, it might be spiritual healing with with uh, a guide you know, to help figure out what else is going on, because it might simply be depression. And so on this screen, depression can be in any or all of the three different parts of a person. So depression of the body would be a physiological condition that can then become overwhelming. It could be in a condition of the mind, which is then treated differently, and it could then be a condition of the heart. And so I think when someone is going through this, 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 uh, this unease, to put it lightly, but uh, I think the next steps would be then to figure out, okay, where can I find healing? And, 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 and so if it's not through a spiritual guide, it might be straightforward mental health. Uh, let me know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it, it's on the right track. Um, I'll keep some, I, I want to keep a little bit reflecting on it. And I was more on the spiritual realm of uh, just, like I said, how do you get in that? How does that happen with recognizing it, being in equilibrium, mm -hmm. managing responsibilities, um, and beyond the mental health aspect, but, yeah, and perhaps more of the spiritual understanding of what that means. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely, inshallah. And, and to, to comment even further, um, a book like uh, Risala uh, by Al-Qushayri, I mean, it's, it's, it's a book that's better done with a guide, but it has three sections there. One section is just the history of all these super, super Sufis, which is there for our purposes more to inspire rather than um, just give a history book, inspire the capabilities of what a person can accomplish. But then after that, we have mystical expressions and then we have maqamat stations. And a way to think of mystical expressions is that every one of us sometimes needs a door or a kick, a push to start the process of seeking to get closer to Allah. In the same way that everyone has their own love language Every one of us has multiple of our own spiritual languages. And every one of us has our own first step languages. So even think, forget this for a second, suppose we're talking about physical fitness. The first step is what is it that's going to get me to actively focus on physical fitness? That's the door. And the second is going to be what physical fitness pathway am I going to go through, right? Is it 
Uh, am I going to go to the gym by myself or at the gym, let's say with a trainer, that would be my Murshid. Am I going to focus on cardio? Am I going to focus on strength? Am I going to focus on stretching? Am I going to focus on diet, etc.? And so each person has their own specific needs, but they also have their own specific skills in each of those things. And, and so such is the case, especially with spirituality. So instead of having, let's say, four things to focus on with the body, you have 40 different possible doorways a person can go through. And then once someone has, has taken the step to go forward to get closer to a law, then you have another 40 pathways. So one pathway is just to focus only on Doba. Another pathway is to focus only on hope. Another fast pass, uh, pathway is only to focus on, on, what's the word, on fear. And so then part of the, the process is to figure out what works for this person. And this is akin, literally what I do when students are coming to the office. I'm not claiming to be some master shake or anything like that, but um, when students are coming to the office and it's a spiritual issue, then in the course of my conversation with them, I'm figuring out, okay, what can I do to get them to be inspired to seek Allah? But the fact that they're coming to my office, sometimes that's already indicates that they've already crossed that, that path. And then what approach is going to work best for them? A lot of times, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 year olds long enough that usually I can figure it out before they sit down. But this applies even to everyone of, of all ages. And so, so the point being that even if we're speaking of spiritual healing, Think of literally a multitude of personal pathways to try. One of them is seclusion. You know, sometimes we may not have the privilege of, of going on a retreat, but we may have the capability of spending, even if it's 15 minutes, of 15 minutes away from the world. So that would be adding more to, you know, possible tools that are available, inshallah. And then you and I, of course, can discuss this online and such, inshallah as in uh, everyone else, inshallah. Any other questions? Okay, so I wanna also get into this last part. So, all the stuff that we have above, these meanings of the ayahs, we have sort of this journey to go through. When I'm looking for the meanings of the ayahs, all right, is it, clear to me? Is it not clear? Is it sincerely clear as opposed to me trying to force a meaning onto it? Can I say that my intention is, is clean as opposed to I'm trying to find my own niche. I'm trying to find my own version of things. And so I'm going to force this thing called Islam to fit within what uh, I want it to be. Even if other people agree with me, it might still be a shared delusional fantasy. And is it somewhat consistent with what I find in the history of, the, of, of commentary? It doesn't mean the history of the commentary is a limitation. Because what's interesting is when we look at the books that are called the mother tafsirs, or mahata tafsir, often what gets added as a mother tafsir by this whole community of scholars was at its time considered to be something way off the path. But in its principles, it was still within in the, uh, you know, the, the basic ideas of tradition. I mean, even uh, Bukhari, 
that you know we consider to be so huge and so important that collection imam bukhari at his time was accused of being an innovator he was accused of bidah which if you think about the people who adhere to bukhari who point the bidah finger at everybody else that's kind of kind of strange so the point is that the scholarly understanding of tradition is not a limitation but the closer you are you find yourself in that for whatever knowledge you have of that uh, it's often considered to be more safe but again we don't rule out disruptions but if you can't answer any of those questions at the very least do you believe in it and do you regard it as nurturing and so this brings us to person number five the people of the heart Obviously, the people of the beating hearts. And so this is this group of people that is given this praise throughout the text. And, and so the closest way I can think of to sort of define it is that these are people who are very conscious and conscientious. Anybody remember how to spell conscientious? Uh, something like this, remotely. Awesome, it's like not even close. Okay, well, y'all know what the word is supposed to be. T instead of C. Oh, snap. Second T, right? Or second C? Second, I'm sorry, it's under my, my thing here. I mean, not the first C, obviously, right? Yeah, there you go. Hazel's got it up. Hazel nailed it. Okay, it's not even close. Hold on. You know what? I was in the spelling bee in sixth grade and I couldn't spell the word legitimate. I think I've never I've never recovered from that. And then all the people who were winning the spelling bees were were Daisy guys because they all had names like Omar Muzaffar, Atul Trivedi. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Um conscious and conscientious of what? So, so if we don't say of what, then what does that mean to you? That this is well, a conscious person. This is a conscientious person. Well, a conscious person person is just someone that's like aware of their surroundings. Okay, but, then how would you regard a conscientious person? Um, like someone who is constantly seeking to do good oh mashallah oh, mashallah thank you for defining it for me just add allah to all this too yeah okay and that seems to be i mean in terms of trying to make sense of who are the ulul albab you know who are the people these beating hearts it seems to be something like this okay yeah that's exactly it any other questions or thoughts or reflections about any of this Okay, we might finally have a short day, inshallah. And, and so, so we've now gone through this whole ayah. What I'd like you to reflect upon next, uh, after this, we have two ayahs of du'as. And then as we finish those two ayahs, I'd like you to try to figure out how do these first nine ayahs of this surah fit together? Meaning, is there a common theme or is there a narrative that is taking place? 
where even if you add this ayah with the previous ayah, which is that Allah formed you in the wombs, so forth and so on, and then he is the uh, the ilah, he is al-aziz, he is al-hakim. Hassan. Um, are duas in the Quran, like in the, that are in the text, are they uh, defined as like specific supplications? As, as a, to instructions or uh, something that is giving us like a, a something about the order of nature? Uh, I, I would say it's essentially both. Okay. That in the du'as we're, uh, that we find in the Quran, especially as opposed to the Hadith literature, the ones we find in the Quran, it, they seem to be continuing the theme that uh, the other ayahs that are not supplications are, are giving, which is that they're also teaching us something about how reality operates, yes. Primarily in our relationship with Allah. Because that's usually somewhere in these du'as. Uh, like if we look at the very last two ayahs of Surah Al-Baqarah, you know, in the ayah, we're literally saying, you know, oh Allah, you do not give, you do not give people burdens that they cannot bear. And so don't hit us with the way you've hit people of the past. So I think that's often there. We are also often in the ayahs taught manners and how to speak to Allah. That's often there. And so often a dua will include some sort of praise of Allah. And, and, and then there's more, and we'll see more, inshallah, uh, as we go through these ayahs. And it's interesting because I was having a conversation with, with this kid that I grew up with who's a Lutheran pastor. And, and he found that to be interesting because that's not how supplications work in terms of his application of the text of the Bible, except for the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, Father, hallowed be thy name on earth and in heaven. Give us this daily bread, so far and so on. So that is something that Christians will recite as is, the way we recite the du'as as is. But most of the conversations with God, including the requests made to God, they do not read them as du'as the way we do. Now, I should also comment that there are some people who don't read the du'as in the Quran that way, especially if someone is saying it. So Ibrahim, alayhi salam, after he and Ismail uh, build the Kaaba, then what do they say? Rabbana taqabbal du'a, so forth and so on. Oh Allah, please accept this. Please accept our du'a and all of our works and all of that. And then we say that du'a at the end of, of our events, but there are some people who will say, no, that was a moment in history. You know, or the, 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 the du'a that Yunus makes, you know, that I was one of the wrongdoers and, you know, please forgive me. Or the du'a that um, uh, Adam and Eve make, you know, that we are wrongdoers, you know, so we, we did wrong and we seek your forgiveness. If you don't forgive us, we're going to be among the losers. So there are some, there is a school of thinking that just takes those as moments in history. But it seems as though the majority opinion is, you no, know, those are actually scripts to say. Any other questions? Any other questions about any of this? That's also a good setup for, for our conversations on du'as, which will happen starting tomorrow. Nothing? Okay, very good, inshallah. So we've talked about this big eye as you're all experts and I can go around preaching it to everyone else. Don't, don't quote me. All right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. 
سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ولا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك and then I should do that to our Rabbana Ta'abal minna May Allah reward you all. And once again, may Allah Ta'ala reward Musab for his exciting performance as an innocent young man from yesterday. Okay. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.